Welcome to the Juno Report, brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. The Juno Report is a monthly audio magazine featuring all things guide dogs, training programs, and items of general interest to guide dog teams. I'm your host, Deb Cook-Lewis, and we're going to get right into our program for today without even finishing all of our introductory stuff, so let's do that right now. We are going to replay the program Stop, Look, and Listen, Pedestrian Safety from Guide Dog Users Incorporated National Convention, July 2019 in Rochester, New York. This will take the entire program and requires no particular introduction from me. So let's begin. We have representatives from the guide dog schools here today to talk about pedestrian safety. And really what I wanted in, in, my, in my own mind, which is a really scary space to hang out in, um, I was <laughs> really scary. I was envisioning this as more of a um, conversation because I know as a as a person who's been a pedestrian for more years than I want to admit to, um, it's getting harder and harder. Drivers are getting more distracted. Every car, whether it's electric, you know, cross, not crossbred, what are they? Cro- hybrid, that's it. <laughs> those, 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 golden, those golden German Shepherd cross cars are a hell of a thing. Uh, um, I mean, I've had a, I've had a, I've had a combustion engine SUV next to me and not even known it, and 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 intersections are getting more complicated, and none of it is thinking about pedestrians who can see or who can't see. So I wanted this to be a, a conversation, but also to get some insight from people who really know what the heck it means to train a dog to help us to figure this all out. So. Um, that's what this is about, and, and it, it isn't real formal, and so I apologize to my panelists ahead of time because I realized just now that I had never shared my actual thoughts with you, so now you know them, and, <laughs> and if you had other thoughts, you're welcome to run with them because I just um, was so excited that we got this off the ground, I forgot to tell you what I was thinking about. Um, so let's in, in, invite and welcome our panel speakers, who I'm really hoping are out there, Okay, uh, my name is Will Henry. I'm one of the field service managers for Guide Dogs for the Blind. And um, it's kind of a broad topic, but I just wrote some things down. Basically, we're trying on several fronts to um, make things safer for our clients. And uh, that goes from uh, going to visit all of our clients before we we give them the dog to look at the environment that they're going to be working in. Um, all the way through training, we're, we're doing traffic checks. We have... Um, a Prius at each campus that we do traffic training with, um, both with the dogs in, in training um, and also clients in, in class. But So when a dog's being trained, before it's okay for, um, to, be, to go into class, it actually, uh, there's four different blindfold tests that the dog has to complete, uh, one of which is just a traffic uh, blindfold test. The others are uh, more of an inside functional uh, blindfold where the um, the instructor goes under blindfold. Um, the other two being God word, God work out on the street, and then also a blindfolded um, 
uh, sidewalkless travel. So, um, so we're we're addressing it as much as we can in in training. But our marketing department has just recently um, done a public service message for radio, talking about distracted driving. Um, so, in addition to that, what we're doing is we have a interdepartmental pedestrian safety committee that we're looking at. Is there better gear um, in the way of uh, vest for either the dog or um, the handler to wear, um, the lights, and we're trying to find out what is going to be most effective at this point. And then we've already got money set aside in this year's budget to purchase those, whatever we find out to be the best, and actually start to issue. Um, we also have additional items in the gift shop that, that folks can, can buy. Up in Oregon, we have uh, applied for a grant. There's a credit union that's giving $10,000 to um, kind of better the community. And we're number two right now of 12 um, finalists that, um, that if we get the $10,000, that's what we will do. Um, that money has to be spent on the organ, but we've already said if we win it, we're going to do the same, of course, for the, the dogs and, and clients graduating from the California campus. So, um, that's uh, a few of the things we're we're doing. We're also encouraging our clients to, you know, meet their town officials. Um, you know, take their traffic engineer out out to lunch and and talk about these things and kind of have a voice at the table um, when it comes time because a lot of a lot of things are being designed, and we we want to make sure that you know if if there's um, you know intersections, roundabouts, things like that that are going in that. You know, we do do have um, you know a voice voice at the table. So um, that's that's what we're doing. Um, who's next here? Okay, this is Chris Eastwood with Fidelco Guide Dogs, and to speak a little bit to traffic safety, um, just to kind of piggyback off of what Will said, um, at Fidelco the dogs will complete five blindfold evaluations with their trainer, a first blindfold that takes place in a suburban environment, and then a second blindfold that takes place in an urban environment, and then a country travel or traveling on a sidewalkless road, an indoor blindfold, and then a third and final blindfold. The traffic training is one of the most imperative aspects of the training that we do with our dogs. It, there is a five days in succession that we do formal traffic training and then a second five days where we begin to generalize it in a more natural setting and then the skill is continued to be generalized throughout the rest of the training. Um, you know, that's one of the most important reasons why we get the guide dog is for traffic safety. Uh, at Fidelco, we teach the dog to practice what we call intelligent disobedience, which means when you ask the dog to go forward at an unsafe time, even if you're not aware that it is an unsafe time, the dog will not go, and you will be trained to listen to your dog and not step out in front of it. And that's how we can help uh, ensure that folks stay safe out there. 
Hi, it's, uh, it's Ben here from CNIB Guide Dogs um, up in from Canada. And uh, just to continue on with that, uh, what the gentleman was saying from Fidelco about, is it Chris? Chris, yeah. Um, um, about the intelligent disobedience and the traffic training, uh, that's something that we encourage our, um, our graduates to, uh, to continue on with when they get home and, and settled in their own area. So that where, when they're in a safe environment, um, um, whereby they can hear traffic around them if they're able to, and uh, they might be at a, an intersection with a stop sign and the road um, that they're following would be on the right-hand side, we get them to practice what we call near traffic checks, which is where if they can hear a car approaching the intersection from their left, they're stood there at the down curb uh, with their dog, they, they would basically encourage the car to go in front of them and move through the intersection before they cross. And as that car is coming up in front of them, we get them to gently encourage their dog to move forward with the expectation that the dog doesn't move anywhere. Um, of course, when the dog doesn't move, then you, you provide your dog with lots of praise and fuss and all that sort of thing for intelligently disobedient, dis being disobedient to what your command was. And that way, if it's, if it's reinforced periodically, and it doesn't have to be every day, it can be maybe once a week, maybe um, twice a week at most. I, you, it's not something that you want to overdo because you want the dog's forward response to stay, um, stay strong as well. So um, from that perspective, um, in encouraging the, the graduates to continue practicing that, it, it enables the dog to remember that portion of the training. And, and hopefully one day, if they ever misassess um, a crossing and, uh, and they, they start a crossing and a car does move in front of them or comes towards them, that the dog's far traffic response or the, the dog's um, uh, response to stop walking uh, to save the unit will be that much stronger if it's something that's uh, upheld and practiced. Just on the same topic, um, with regards to safety and things like that, one of the really important things that we look at at assessment before we uh, decide to train somebody with a dog is their, their own orientation and mobility ability in their own areas. So how well they know their routes and how safe are they at crossings. So we'll make sure to um, observe them uh, using a cane or if they have a dog already um, independently crossing a road. Um, and, and if uh, if it's available to them in their home area, see, uh, see them perform at some of their busier intersections to assess how well they're um, uh, assessing the traffic and how safely they're crossing the street. And that's something that's a really important prerequisite to coming in for guide dog training is that they can safely and confidently um, do that in their own area. And, uh, and if not, our organization with the CNIB, uh, we, you know, we have orientation and mobility officers that can provide further training before coming in for a guide dog if necessary. So that sort of thing will be highlighted early on and then uh, um, we'll go forward as needed and, and educate further if, and if necessary as well. Um, other than that, things that we talk about on class, obviously wearing light-colored clothing that's, that can make them uh, make everybody very visible to vehicle drivers, uh, particularly if you're going to be out past daylight hours, if you're going to be out at, in evenings, or if you think you're going to be out later, then wearing bright-colored clothing is a really good option. Um, these lights, uh, such as the ones that Roughwear provided for us today, um, are a great option to keep yourself 
very visible to vehicle drivers. And that's something that you as the handler need to be very aware of to help keep your, yourself as safe as possible in those types of environments. So, uh, you know, keeping yourself visible, having a good orientation uh, in the areas and routes that you're doing, and being prepared to ask for sighted assistance if necessary. So coming to a convention like this where on Main Street it's quite busy, uh, we've been very fortunate that the police officers have been up at that main intersection there kind of helping people safely cross. Under normal circumstances, you're probably not going to have those crossing guards there or those police officers there to help. Um, so if you're somewhere unfamiliar or even if you're somewhere very familiar and it, uh, you're not 100% um, confident that you can get across the road safely or assess the traffic safely, then it should always be an option for you to request sighted assistance if there's somebody around to ask or reroute yourself if necessary. Uh, that's certainly one of the challenges that I think a lot of people come across, especially if they get out of uh, their own home turf where they're more familiar. Hello, it's Rivi Israel from Guide Dog Foundation. Uh, you know, just to ditto what every other school just said, um, you know, pretty much all of us guide dog schools, we have very similar programs uh, where you know, certainly consumer safety is primary, primarily the most important thing. Um, so, you know, including, you know, with what we do training-wise with our dogs, we do teach traffic sessions, make sure the dogs understand what the vehicles are, to respect the vehicles but not fear them, um, but also know how to, you know, control and be able to stop at safe distances um, if a vehicle does come in its path. Um, so we do some training with, with all of our dogs, certainly blindfold testing, with testing uh, the abilities with the dogs. Uh, for our consumers, anytime we have any of our clients on class, we do a lot of work with traffic um, and making sure that the consumers are safe in their environment. Uh, we also do a trip at night uh, where we'll have all of our consumers wear uh, reflective vests. Uh, every dog and every team is issued a blinker, which kind of flashes at night, similar to the Roughwear Prize that uh, came out, but unfortunately we don't have the audible ones. They don't make audible noises. Um, but uh, so, we do, so really the biggest thing um, anytime you're a pedestrian out there walking is be as visible as possible. Uh, I'm sure almost everybody in this room understands, you know, wear reflective vests. You know, make sure you're visible. Make sure your dog is visible. Know the area. Know your abilities, your limitations, as well as your dogs. Um, so whether with your dog or keen, just being, being out there, being visible is the biggest thing you can do. Um, you know, certainly when you're crossing streets, make sure you're taking safe crossings. Uh, work with your mobility instructors for your home area to determine where the safest place is for you to do those street crossings. Um, when is the best time to go? Work with your, your town traffic engineers. Um, but, you know, just, you know, be as safe and as visible as possible, uh, no matter where you're at work, walking. All righty. So this is David from Leader Dog. Um, so, yes, these guys stole my thunder with all of their information. Um, very much the same of course, at Leader Dog as, as other schools in terms of safety, uh, traffic training with our dogs, uh, traffic training through class, um, and I agree completely in terms of the handler keeping themselves uh, as visible as possible, um, especially when it's getting to dusk and evening time. That, that sort of reflective um, material is, is probably going to work best. Uh, but I'm just going to add a little bit on from almost what Will was saying in terms of city planning. Um, in getting to know your city planners and, and know what's going on in your communities. Um, so I'm going to sort of switch over the Atlantic a little bit and talk about what's happening over in Europe and has been happening probably for the last five or ten years. Um, and I've seen it 
cropping up a little bit here, but not too much, and so I don't know what the trend will be. Um, but what I've seen happening a lot over there are what's called shared surfaces, um, and they really are where the road and the sidewalk are at the same level, and there's no sort of delineation between the two. Possibly some colored brick, something like that, but as we know, if there's no tactile information, how do you know you've crossed from a safe environment into an unsafe uh, and the, I think the concept started in Sweden or Norway, somewhere like that. Um, and the idea was between the driver and the pedestrian to have eye contact, to decide kind of how you're going to navigate the environment, which we know in the world of uh, blindness and vision impairment isn't going to work too well. So um, I would say there's a lot of research out there that, that you can tap into, and there's been adaptions and changes to those environments. Um, uh, I, I worked with a team, it was called Pamela, and I forget exactly what it was, but it was to do with pedestrian access. And we did a, a trial that was very specific about what that edge or colored brick could be, what's the sort of angle that, that we would actually be able to determine that you've crossed from a, a safe to a non-safe um, that would also keep the city planners happy that they wanted this environment that looks open. Um, because they were really removing all of the safety barriers that, that originally had been put in. So um, they can be unsafe. It does, those environments do tend to slow the driver down because there's a little bit more going on and you haven't kind of got that safety guardrail or the curb. Um, but at the same time, um, as we know, it can be unsafe. So um, I just wanted to add that little bit. <laughs> no, we're on the same page as every other guide dog school. The one thing that we do also is when we see our applicants, we also tell them to contact the Braille Institute and stuff so they can also help them connect and get other signals out there, talk to their city councils and so forth, and just start ahead of time before they actually get their guide dogs. Also, what we recommend for them is always having alter routes. Because if it's something like during business hours and it's not safe to travel this one route they do, have a backup route always because you just never know if it's going to get chaotic. But also be aware when you are crossing a street beforehand what your traffic are because a lot of times, I, I, and I've talked to clients and they felt guilty on it, they put themselves on autopilot and forget at that last moment. So wait for a second cycle. We tell them that. We really reinforce that. Your dogs know what to do. Be aware of what your dog's responses are. So we, everybody seems to be on the same page of what we do. It's just, you know, remembering you and your dog are a team. Hey, everyone. It's Miranda from Guiding Eyes for the Blind. Um, much like all the other schools represented here, we do multiple phases of traffic training. Um, and we do test and, and make sure that the dog is proficient with their response to traffic in different scenarios, in different environments, in different settings before they come into class. One of the things we have found is that um, when we are running traffic in our residential environment, like when we're doing our traffic training with our class, um, people can be in a heightened state of anxiety. Sometimes this can be a time where somebody's not in the present moment. Maybe they're back with a bad experience they've had in the past. Um, and we do, in my opinion, if people are in a heightened state of anxiety, they're not taking in information as readily. So we actually do a practice session without a car <laughs> and we use a shopping cart and we rehearse the dogs we show them how the dog is going to respond with 
the zone that they're going to be comfortable with, with the backup response, and with the forward refusal. Okay, And so we can get that in, we can get that practice, and we can also work through some of the kinks. Maybe somebody's so excited that their dog stopped for the grocery cart, they start to bend over, and then we can address that positioning. Um, and it, it's, it saves us from having to run extra traffic checks with a car and the dog, because the reality is the only one during the traffic training when we are driving the car that's not in it, that this isn't actually a life-and-death situation, is the dog. The student can know I'm going to be driving a car at them. I know I'm driving a car at them and not actually going to hit them. But there's no way we can explain that to the dog. So in a way, we do this to try to be able to do multiple reps and build muscle memory and understanding out of a stressful environment before we put the folks into that street work with the real environment, the real car, and the real pedestrians that sometimes come and yell at me and tell me I don't know how to drive. Um, so... That's part of it. And the other thing is, I mean, as an instructor, I really want to just stress, I've heard uh, staying in your good following position, particularly in the crossing, and keeping the dog out in front. If your dog is not going as fast as they usually do in the crossing, presume it's for a good reason. It's when we get out and ahead and we try to encourage, especially for the older dogs, they are going to slow down some with age, and we all know that. Um, but if we start to accommodate or try to help by getting out in front and encouraging the dog along. Not only are you putting yourself in a position to not feel the instant response when a dog is responding to a car or a cart, a stroller, whatever other object coming into their zone, um, you're taking away your ability to react faster. Or at worst case scenario, you may be even taking over some of the responsibility for the response from the dog. So. It's interesting because I think there's a, a few different little ways that we can, by coming from a good place and trying to make an accommodation to suit the dog, which is lovely, we may be passing over some of that responsibility. So if you are getting to the point where you feel like your dog is dawdling in multiple crossings, if they are um, not as assertive in their curb approaches for that up curb, that's probably the time to call your school not once you're, you've had a close call with a vehicle. Um, but of course, keep the drive and uh, keep praising your dog at those up curbs. Thank you for all that information and I think we should open it to questions. And again, I want to remind you that all of you got, um, hopefully all of you got your registration bags. If you didn't, let me know uh, after this presentation. And um, there is a safety vest and four safety snap bracelets, in reflective snap bracelets, all of those because of some generous donations that we got so that we can have, we can be sure that everyone goes home with the opportunity to be as visible as possible. All right, Veronica here. I have a question about intelligent disobedience. Um, I'm familiar with the traditional methods of teaching uh, intelligent disobedience. My question is, has any of the schools found any ways to teach intelligent disobedience using positive reinforcement? Okay, Chris with Fidelco here. Uh, so to, to break down sort of the nuts and bolts of how we formally teach the traffic training, um, you're going to be transitioning into a few different quadrants. Um, it's it's going to go from, let's see, it's going to go from positive punishment, and you add 
the stimulus, the car, and then the dog is going to assumably stop, and then you are going to negatively re negative reinforcement by removing the stimulus, and then you will positively reinforce uh, the dog by praising it and continuing to move forward through the environment. So, so you're going to transition from more than one quadrant of learning. It's not just going to be one or the other. Next question. <laughs> this is Diane Bergeron, and for the moment, I'm not going to be with CNIB Guide Dogs. I'm going to be with CNIB. Um, so I, in my, wearing my other hat at CNIB, I'm Vice President of Engagement International Affairs, and we are a member of the World Blind Union, as is the American Council of the Blind and many other organizations in the United States. The president of the World Blind Union, um, Fred Schroeder, has been sitting on the regulatory body at the international level to look at standards for uh, the hybrid vehicles in trying to get the sound into the engines of the silent vehicles. And he's been told several times that it's um, that the drivers, that the pedestrian has the right of way, and his response is, thank you, I do not need my, uh, my gravestone to say he had the right of way. Um, so he has been working very, very hard at that level, and um, I just would like to suggest that if you receive any kind of request to support uh, making the standards for that, please read through it and please do whatever they, that is asked in signing petitions, sending letters to regulatory bodies, because he is getting very close to making sure that that's going to happen for us. And um, I think that it's going to be good for us moving forward. I, I just wanted to do that. But I also have a question about traffic safety. And it's going to sound like a weird question, but I travel, given my, my work, I travel internationally. So I would like to ask uh, the trainers, if I live in Canada and the traffic comes from one direction and I travel to the United Kingdom, and the traffic is now coming from the other direction. Does the dog have to be trained in both, or do they see the car as just an obstacle? Is this going to be a is this a problem for the dogs? So, any instructors want to take that, Ben? I haven't I haven't had any firsthand experience in working or training dogs in a country where. Uh, traffic is on the other side. My thoughts are that with practice that the dogs will um, begin to generalize traffic, particularly moving cars, and that's I think ideally what we want for the dogs to identify is when a, a car is switched on, when its motor's sounding, if it, if it has an audible motor, and, uh, and when it's moving. So I would hope that any dog that I've been working with here um, that I've built up that response solidly enough that if I was to move into a, a, a different situation where the car was coming from another direction, the dog's response is not going to change and that it should still stop or refuse to move off the, the down curb if there's a, a moving car on the, on the approach. So that's my thought. I don't know, Dave, you've got that. I would actually completely agree with what Ben's saying there. I think if the dogs have built up, built up an imaginary bubble around themselves in terms of that critical area for traffic, um, uh, thinking about the experiences that we teach in uh, training that they're going to pick up through real-life experiences, um, my mind goes straight away to things like near as far traffic, far as near, so where the, the vehicle is on the other side of the road anyway because maybe the part of the, the road is, is closed off. 
Um, my experiences of, of that in the UK, the dog is always, with the right level of exposure, responded appropriately to the traffic. So, so I would say yes. Uh, to add to that, then I think it's your dog's experience through life. Um, and so if your dog has maybe been caught out by traffic coming from behind on the right-hand side, as it would be here, they may be more aware of that side through experience rather than traffic coming from behind on the left-hand side in another country. But uh, aside from that, I would say technically the dog should. Yeah. Just one quick addition to that. Um, when we're doing our traffic training, when, the, when we're building the dog's responses to traffic, um, particularly in the far situations where the dog is on the move and we're expecting the dog to stop, we will bring the vehicle uh, that we're using from any direction that we possibly can. So we're bringing the car from behind the dog across in front of them. We're backing out of driveways um, from hidden situations where there might be a bush or something obstructing the view so the dog doesn't see the car until it's basically right on top of them. Um, so we're, we're really building that response from all different angles, if you will. Chris with Fidelco here. I'd just like to also add, once the skill is taught, during the formal training process, it's then generalized not only to vehicles, but then to other things like bicycles, joggers, motorcycles, things like that and of that nature. So I would not anticipate any significant issues traveling to another country as long as the skill is generalized with the team. <coughs> Excuse me. But... Um, I would probably anticipate a greater issue with the handler being unfamiliar in the, the new environment. So it would not be a safety issue as far as traffic safety in the, in the European environment coming from the United States. It would probably be just the, the handler acclimating to this new environment. Okay. This is on a little bit of a different... Um thought process, and I have so been looking forward to asking our trainers some advice on this issue. Um, I travel a lot independently, but I also occasionally travel with sighted people. <laughs> and now my husband, I'm usually in the middle of next week before he catches up, but occasionally we're on in the same point. And I have been conditioned from a very, 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 very early age that when I hear the word stop, I stop. And so we'll be headed somewhere, and all of a sudden I hear stop. And what I find out is that my husband or whomever I happen to be traveling with has told me to stop because there's a car coming by. And as where I, well, parking lot or driveway, whatever it might happen to be, and I try to explain to them, look, if you tell me to stop and I stop, then I just did the work for the dog. And this particular area is very, very important. And I try and try to explain this. My husband gets it. He lives with me. He knows he has to or else. What advice or what would you tell me to share with people to get them to understand that doing the work for the dog could conceivably set up a disaster. This is Jake with uh, Guide Dogs for the Blind. Uh, as a fellow handler, um, I'd say ditto. But to add to that, um, I think we, you, know, you can't underscore the, the social pressure as being a guide dog handler and dealing with 
other people's perceptions, whether it's somebody behind you yelling stop, whether it's somebody at the street corner in a car yelling, the light's green, the light's green, go, and you're feeling under pressure because now you feel you should go because that's a societal thing, right? You want to do the right thing, but you don't actually know that it's safe. Um, I, I, I would just advise, you know, explain that this dog is designed to help you avoid a life or death situation. And by the person interfering with you, they are taking away your one and only uh, safety net in doing that. And really just emphasizing that point that you need the dog and you need the skills of that dog to keep you safe. And though you appreciate that someone is trying to help you, maybe there's a better way that they can do it. Uh, soft tap on the shoulder, maybe not being so loud and dramatic. Um, you know, there's maybe other ways to curb that um, feedback so that if you want that feedback or you need that feedback or the person feels that they should give that to you, um, they're able to do that without it interfering with your ability to handle your dog. Um, hope that helps. I would just add, too, that, um, you know, when I'm working with clients, I will encourage if that's a, a problem that I know, you know, the, the client has, has told me about, that, you know, whoever their spouse is or O&M instructor or, you know, friend, that coworker that they go to lunch with, that, you know, have them come out and observe where we're walking with the clients. Because part of the, the reason if, if, if he's having to yell stop, then he's probably way too far back to, to really, you know, help. And your dog may not react as soon as he thinks that it should. But if he was right up on your right shoulder and able to, like Jake said, you know, be there last minute to stop, he would probably find that your dog's checking. It's just not checking as, as far back. But I would also say anytime you have any kind of um, concerns about your dog being bold in traffic, call your school. So they, they need to be aware of it, and, and you know, hopefully they have, have folks that can come out and, and work with you. So. This is Andrea. It's a little bit of a different topic, but recently when people have asked if they can pet my dog, I'm tired of explaining and I'm tired of... So I just say, okay, if I can poke your eyes, you can pet my dog. <laughs> now, unfortunately, someone the other day said that I could poke their eyes, and I was kind of stumped because I'm like, oh, that was supposed to stop you in your tracks. <laughs> Are you teaching students where the audio pedestrian signals are? so that they can press that button and, you know, cross safer, or do you not regard that? I know it. Uh, this is Will from Guide Dogs for the Blind. I know we're um, using a targeting exercise where we do use the clicker. We don't use the clicker in actual traffic training um, because we don't want the dog to be looking for food and not paying attention when they're in the street to, to the next car that's coming through. But um, when they are on a sidewalk, we do teach our clients how to use a targeting exercise with a clicker um, to, to find push-button poles. So I'll let Chris with Fidelco here. Uh, when we're working with our students in the field, uh, we will be teaching them in, in the environment that they are working in. And if they are working in an environment that has a push-button signal, then we can teach the team to target a particular button on a pole. But during the, the formal 
guide dog training, we do not teach that skill. We, um, we do teach it on placement from time to time if the student would prefer it. Uh, but we do value maintaining a s straight line and a center line above all. Um, going back to the orientation and mobility side of things, uh, that's going to be a prerequisite before getting a guide dog, and you're always going to want to rely primarily on your orientation and mobility skills opposed to the button, because as we know, uh, drivers are not always going to listen to the traffic signals. Are any of the schools tr training the dogs about the dangers of these the great increase right now of these motor scooters and bicycles that seem to be coming from all directions on sidewalks. Chris again with Fidelco. Um, I just got back not long ago from Austin, Texas, when that's like a, a new thing that's popped up there. There's a lot of those rent-a-scooter things. Um, but to answer your question, no, not in particular. There's, there's not one particular thing that we're doing to prepare more or less for that, that's just going to fall under the responsibility of the guide team in general. It's going to be their job to uh, work together to navigate the environment safely. Yeah, great question. So um, last week, uh, several of my colleagues and I um, participated in a study called the Better Market Street Project in downtown San Francisco. And a little bit back to what David was saying about um, shared spaces and finding a tactile, tactile delineator. That's a fancy word for something like truncated domes. So, um, you know, we, we are looking at, you know, we're helping these folks with the study so that they can just develop standards so that when, we are, when there are shared spaces, um, you know, that bicycles, e-scooters, other sort of modes of alternative transportation um, or micro-transportation, I think they're called, um, when they're being developed, that there's a way that if you're in a public space, that there's going to be a place for pedestrians to walk safely and a place for the e-scooters the e to go. Um, of course, you know, just in general, the, the natural consequences of being out in society teaching these dogs, and well, for us, it'd be downtown San Rafael or downtown um, Portland, Oregon, um, downtown San Francisco. We're occurring, the dogs are going to be exposed to bicycles, e-scooters, shopping carts, different types of wheeled contraptions. Um, so they do get some awareness, and we certainly do focus on helping um, the dogs understand that these, too, are obstacles, just like a pedestrian clearance, as we would call it. Um, and so we're trying to do kind of on both fronts, on the training side, but also, you know, being parts, part of research opportunities uh, and conferences, mobility conferences, and just you know, getting our voice out there and being heard so that as this continues, as the trend continues, at least we can find a way to have a shared space without uh, it being so dangerous. Because I can agree, in Portland, Oregon right now, they're, they're big, and there's parts of the city that I won't go because they're so dangerous. Hi, it's Becky Davidson from Guiding Eyes, but right now I'm wearing my chair of the Environmental Access Committee hat um, for ACB. We just had, I don't know if any of you attended the Taming the Curb presentation Saturday afternoon, but I just want to take a minute just to tell you about some of the advocacy efforts that are, gonna, are going on because of the kinds of things that we're all talking about here. Um, and mu much of the advocacy does have to start at the local level. 
Um, one of your best resources is, is the Pedestrian Safety Handbook, which is on the ACB website. Um, if you've seen that, it's a lot of reading and it's not all in legalese, but there were some very uh, well-known O&M specialists and guide dogs with people who were involved in, in putting that together. One of the things that came up Saturday in regards to e-scooters and um, e-bikes and even regular bikes Lucas Frank was talking about how in Europe they have, they're required to have bells on their bikes that, that ring at, a, at intervals. And you know, one of the things I think we're gonna begin advocating for is to have those bells on those e-scooters and those e-bikes so that you can hear them coming. Cause they come at you, they can go up to 20 miles an hour. Um, and that is not good. Um, so, you know, the, the other thing I just wanna let you know is that ACB um, and our committee um, are entering into partnerships with organizations like America Walks and Vision Zero, whose goal is pedestrian safety for all pedestrians, but we wanna make sure that we're included among all pedestrians and that the information that gives us equal access to the environment needs to be shared. One of the biggest concerns, and somebody asked about the um, accessible pedestrian poll, the one out here at Maine and whatever that is, St. Paul, is an example of how not to place them. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard for me to believe that nobody recognized that. I mean, those curbs aren't even decent, but those are the kinds of things that we need to advocate for in our communities where we know the area and we know, you know what's, what's going on in any particular area. And we certainly will keep the schools apprised of everything that's going on for, on those levels. I have suggested that GDUI form a pedestrian safety committee within the organization and that all state affiliates do it as well. So um, we're hopeful that that's gonna happen, but thanks, I just wanted to share that. Hi, this is Rosanna from Long Island. Um, I'm the president for the Long Island Council of the Blind and also involved in the pedestrian safety committee that has been formed to work on APS signals on Long Island as well. But um, here's one of the questions that I have um, in following the best practices for the APS signaling. Um, and I noticed it here, I think we've all noticed crossing Main Street. Normally, uh, my dog, um, when we go to a down curb, will stop at the top of that down curb to let me know that that down curb is coming up. And then I would just, you know, say hop, hop when we're ready to cross after we push the button. But um, typically here, what's happening, I noticed where there are no down curves and the street and the sidewalk blend together, um, the dogs don't know that they're in the street and neither do you. So like, how, is there a way to train them or target a situation like that so the dogs stop um, at a certain point before they would reach the point where you're both standing in the road. You know, I had a similar thought to what you were talking about when we were out doing some crossing work with one of our clients at the intersection, I believe it's St. Paul in Maine, where there's this one really rounded down curb, but it's actually a ramp, but it's to the same pavement as the road, and it's a really, there's two truncated dome strips that both point you towards the diagonal of the intersection. It's a really interesting thing. So, 
I mean, I know when I'm training my dogs, if they come into a defined curb, great. That's nice and clear for the dog. The dog's like, yep, here's the curb. I'm pretty confident in this. May I have my treat? And they usually say yes. Um, but ramps are a little bit more of a gray area, aren't they? So as long as I can, t if the dog brings me into a ramp and stops somewhere in that change of elevation, and I know that there's cross traffic, I'm close to a road, I think, yeah, I think I'm pretty much in a ramp. I tend to leave them there. I don't necessarily need to find the very seam of where that ramp meets the road because sometimes it's not really defined at all. Um, and I've found that the more I say and kind of micromanage that curb approach and say, no, I want to get a little closer. No, that's too far. We're going to come back a little. Now it's very likely that we've changed orientation and no longer on that good straight line. 90% of a good crossing is a good curb approach. So if they come in confidently, they stop. Even if they're midway in the ramp, I'm more than willing to accept that because that's what I can tactily feel. It's tricky, though. I've worked in areas. There is a particular area in Denver that there's no delineation as far as elevation change and there's nothing visual for the dogs to pick up on. There may or may not be uh, truncated domes and very shortly after that imaginary down curb were train tracks or trolley tracks. Um, so that's when we would rely heavily on landmarking and targeting skills for the dog and teaching the dog to stop at a particular place if, I think when I was doing a home training out there, we actually landmarked a light post because it was something tactile, it was consistent, and it was within a reasonable area to make our crossing from. So sometimes you have to think a little out of the box there. But having really good skills on teaching your dog to landmark or target, I think, are great use in these situations that are less than ideal. Who else has a question? I just had a, this is Andrea, I just had a comment. I'm also noticing with my dog, like in my area, Whereas in the past, my dogs might have taken me right up to the end of that ramp or right up to the edge of the curb. We can't do that anymore because the cars are turning and he's going to lose his face. Yeah. So he's now, instead of going right to a curb, he's stopping. And then when it's time to cross, he's actually sort of stepping up, hesitating at the actual delineation and going on. So it's completely changed how we do street crossings and say we did them in class because we can't safely stand at the curb because he's going to get his, he's going to lose his head. One thing I found in the last couple of weeks are the cars that they're not hybrids and they're not the electric cars, but they're designed to shut off yes. when you take your foot off the mm -hmm. gas and then they start up again when you yep. start, put your foot back on the gas. And I thought, oh, I haven't run into those that I know of, but I was riding in them. My cousin just got a new car and that's what they got. I think it's interesting that for this panel, all the, the panelists were instructors, and many of the issues that are coming up um, that we're hearing around the room are about the environment, um, not the instruction itself. Um, I want to second what many people have said. My name, by the way, is Rabia Dao. I am the newly appointed the director of uh, advocacy and outreach at GDB. I think the advocacy piece is critical. We need to be more involved. I know some people kind of, um, you know, when they heard, take your uh, traffic engineer or city planner to lunch, I'm sure they, they groaned. And, you know, it's, we, we are reacting. If we do not get involved with them from the get-go in the planning stages, we are simply reacting afterward, and the job is much more difficult. Uh, I want to go back to um, 
what Jake mentioned, the study in San Francisco, they reached out to GDB, and there were six guide dog users in the study. Most O&M studies don't involve guide dog users, or we kind of, if there's an exception, they're not focused on us as guide dog users in the, in the pedestrian world. We need to be more active in that world. And by the way, um, how can I say this? Um, just uh, check when they say yes, come over for a study, because sometimes they may have made their decision already and they're just going through the process of covering their, their back. <laughs> so we need to really be proactive, and the more they know about us up front, that we are part of the community and we have needs that would actually serve us and others too, the safer we can all be with, uh, with the training we receive from the schools. Thank you. Jake here. Uh, so piggybacking on what Rabia said about advocacy, um, you know, the Polara, uh, who's a manufacturer of the APS signals, um, they have some great resources, uh, form letters, um, other things that um, they're happy to share in, in helping get the signals um, installed. So if you're thinking about this, you're know, running into some, well, roadblocks, no pun intended. <laughs> um, okay, I'm good. I'm glad someone got that. <laughs> um, you know, think about that. Reach out to them. They're, I know they're, I believe they're here uh, in the exhibit hall. Um, talk to them about that. Of course, APS is not the end-all, be-all solution, but it is a, another tool in your toolbox when it comes to traffic safety. Uh, and I had a great conversation with them at a recent conference, and, and they're very open to, to talking to anybody that wants to get this installed, and they're very passionate about helping people do that. We've got time for about one more question. Hi, it's Becky again. One tool that has been used by... Um, people in various parts of the country, I know in, in Westchester County it was done and up around Albany and in New York City, was to create an event where traffic engineers or people who are in decision-making um, processes um, about pedestrian safety and particularly intersection and, and street crossings, you create an event where they have an opportunity to cross the street with a, an O&M person or a partner wearing a blindfold um, and then they have an understanding of, you know, what what that feels like. You know, we did one in in uh, White Plains with um, our pedestrian safety coalition in there. And basically, what we did was we said, okay, you know, we have you under blindfold. Tell us when you think it's safe to cross the street. And in one one crossing, there was an APS, so that was okay. And then we said, now how does this feel? Without, with, with no APS. And, and then we're like, okay, do you want to try this with a white cane by yourself? And they're like, no. <laughs> but um, it's a really nice tool for them, and it can have quite an impact on them in their decision-making processes when they actually experience that kind of thing. Hey, I'm Maria Hansen, um, and I'm chair of the PASS Coalition in New York City, Pedestrians for accessible and safe streets. And we're a coalition of over a couple of dozen organizations um, and consumers that have shared interest in these things. Uh, consumer organizations, um, guide dog organizations, uh, assisted living centers, all sorts of groups. But uh, what you're saying is absolutely correct. You have to have all these people working together and you can't um, 
leave it to necessarily the traffic engineers. A lot of times they don't understand the problems. One of the frustrations that we do have also, we have some excellent O&M people that we work with and we evaluate intersections. We prioritize the ones that are the most dangerous and that should get the signalization sooner because of um, limited funding. Um, but it's frustrating with O&M instructors. A lot of them do not understand the new signalization patterns. Um, and one of the things in New York, there was uh, by Lincoln Center, the bow tie area. It's a block away from <laughs> the Lighthouse Guild. And the signals were, it was horrible. And all these things were installed improperly. And Chris Buckley, who's a seeing eye graduate, and myself, kept saying, this is all wrong. And they kept saying, it can't be. You know, this was done properly, blah, blah, blah. Even our O&M instructor said, well, that's, you know, the rules. That's not how you do it. And we said, well, you come up here and look at it. And came up, oh, my God. And then we work, Lucas Frank, who's brilliant, came in, helps us out, took all sorts of pictures, we went through this entire bow tie area and showed all the problems and showed it to DOT. But it's so much better. Now, a lot of times, they work with us ahead of time and ask our advice. But I would like to see O&M people have better training um, for these new patterns. It is kind of frustrating that these people go to work every day. This is on their corner and they don't realize that all the stuff is installed improperly. Uh, the other thing, just real quick on curb cuts, we tell people do not rely on those for orientation. Uh, you will get killed. Do your line of travel. The curb cuts, the main thing is, uh, you know, for wheelchairs, shopping carts, people with baby carriages, all sorts of things. And there could be things under the surface in New York City subways or cellars that extend from under buildings where they can't do the cuts in other places. So just, it's nice to know they're there, but don't rely on them. Just ignore them. Does anyone else have questions or comments? I just have a really quick thought. Um, a couple of years ago, we, we ran a workshop uh, through our council, through LICV, basically for, um, for traffic engineers. Um, as a matter of fact, Becky Barnes, I think, was there. She might remember it. Um, Jean Berkwin was there, and they did a whole thing on pedestrian safety. And one of the things that came out of that workshop, and uh, here's an FYI, is that some of the engineers came up to us and said, we had no idea that blind people use or listen to parallel traffic in order to know when it's safe to cross the street. And I mean, literally, um, this was really a, a lesson for them out of the box. Um, so when we are talking about pedestrian safety and working with the DOT, and even in your local area where you have to work with traffic controllers, they honestly, Many of them do not understand and do not know how blind people are trained to do O&M, to cross the street. Um, the enlightenment for these engineers really helped them, especially out in Suffolk County, 
where a lot of the traffic signals have been put in, um, in the right places based on the book of best practices, which is what it should be. Uh, that should be the code they should be using anyway. But um, they now are putting these APS signals in, in mind, bearing in mind that the blind person has to still listen for parallel traffic and pay attention to what's around them before they make that cross across the street. So just an FYI, just be aware that if you think the engineers know this stuff, they really don't. They do need to be educated in terms of how a blind person is taught O&M and how they are taught to cross the street. And that wraps up Episode 2 of the Juno Report for this month. The Juno Report is brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. If you'd like to get in touch with us to uh, share your ideas or comments about the show, don't hesitate to write to Juno Report at guidedogusersinc.org. That's Juno Report at guidedogusersinc.org. That was such a fabulous presentation, and I hope you'll join us again next month when we return with the Juno Report. I love my dog, baby.